One thing about myself, something that I love is, and I'm learning this more and more as I grow older, is that I love multiculturalism. Let me explain. Um, A few months ago, Sue and I were in New York City. I used to live in New Jersey, and New York City was always in my, pretty much my backyard my whole life. And it was a very multicultural area. And then we moved to 99.9% Italian, westerly Rhode Island. And now I go back to New Jersey, I'm sorry, to New York City a few months ago, and it's, it's so culturally diverse there. I mean, within a block, there's just every culture and color and, and beauty. You know, it's, it's just such diversity, you know, just put together into one little small place. And I love that. I love that. In fact, I think that multiculturalism is one of the, the, the greatest things that humanity has to offer, that different cultures bring different things to the table, their histories, their, you know, what, what made them individual and unique as a people group, as a nation, and they, you know, they bring their, their, their whatever it is, their food, their dress, whatever it is that makes up a culture. Um, I love multiculturalism. Uh, Susie and I, last month, a month and a half ago, we were... Um, suffering for the Lord on a cruise to Bermuda. No, the Bahamas, to the Bahamas. Sorry. You know, in in deep despair and suffering. But before we went on the boat, we had a day to ourselves in Orlando, Florida. We went to Disney World, and we went to the, what's it called, the the World Showcase. Showcase. Exactly, Peter. So we went to Epcot World Showcase, and we've been there before, but it was extra special because it was the Food and Wine Festival, which was really neat because you get to kind of walk around the countries, and like there was always these kiosks all around where you can go and get like a plate of the food from the culture for like, you know, three bucks, four bucks, little small plates. I mean, you could just fill up just walking around Epcot to getting these little small plates everywhere you go. And I loved it, you know, because each country, and it wasn't just the countries that are normally represented at Epcot. They had different kiosks for other countries, and I just love that. I love multiculturalism. Um, So my mind just kind of goes various places, and I, I tend to wonder, and I started to wonder, is multiculturalism going to be in the kingdom of God. Hear me out. Are these things, these parts of culture from other nations, are they a joy to the Lord or are they an abomination to the Lord? Now, first, let me clarify one quick thing. I'm not talking about race. We can just put that aside because racism is just a, is, 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 is a, is a lie from the enemy. There's really only one race. It's just a human race, and we're all just different shades. So I'm not talking about color. I'm talking about culture, okay? And you may say, well, why would you ask what would be the problem with other people's cultures to the Lord? Well, the reason it might be, and this is for discussion, well, not discussion here. I'll go have a beer with you anytime, but when over here, I'm talking. This isn't discussion. So... Um, so culture, 
very often has its roots in a false religion. Let's just look at a couple of examples, right? So Indian culture. And what comes with culture? There's like dancing, art, dancing, uh, singing. What else are cultural expressions? Maybe architecture, food. Um, These types of things are are cultural expressions, but they often, in in, in various cultures and in countries, they do have a root in, in religion that was unique to that country that is not the religion of the Lord. Okay? So let's just take in this example, uh, Indian Bollywood dancing. Right? So, I mean, it's fun and I enjoy it. So if I go see, if I go to a place where there's, there's an expression of an Indian culture, I love it. I love it. I love it. Susie and I once took an exercise class where it was all Bollywood dancing. And there's Sue and I were snapping our fingers and you had to smile the whole time. You shake your head. You know, and I love it. I really love it. But you have to realize that most Indian dancing has its root in Hinduism. In fact, within the Hindu religion, it's one of their gods that actually invented the dancing. So at its root, it's a worship. The dance is a worship or a connection to a Hindu god. At its root. I'm not saying that everybody today, when they're doing that type of Bollywood dancing, is, is, is doing something that is religious or they're having a connection. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Certainly when Sue and I were doing that exercise class, we were not. But the root of what we were doing, the origin of it, is pagan. So with that, I start to wonder, like, will there be Indian dancing in the kingdom of God, when Yeshua shows up, because God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. There shall be no other gods before him. He makes it abundantly clear that he hates other gods. And other religions is a part of other cultures, but God hates other gods. He is a jealous God. And even unto the end, it says in Zechariah, in the end, in that day, he shall be one. So all other gods and religions will be cast into the lake of fire. But what about the cultural expressions that came from that? African drumming. Not always. It was very often just an instrument, but in some areas, it was a way to bring the the gods of healing. And it was a way to kind of summon the gods. Now, Sue and I, a couple of days ago and others, went to see Black Nativity in Boston. It was uh, the the, uh, Christmas story um, that's um, by like an African-American choir. And there was a lot of African drumming. And it was all very holy and wonderful. But the root of some African drumming is a connection to a false god. So is African drumming an abomination to the Lord? Let's look at American Indians or Native Americans, right? We do their, do their rain dances and things like that. Clearly something that's a religious expression for them and is an abomination, but just the dance itself. Let's say you saw a Native American festival and they're dancing. Is that 
an abomination to the Lord because of the root of it? And I think that is a fair question. Like, is the only dancing in the kingdom of God, once Yeshua comes and the Torah goes forth from Zion, as it says, is the only dance going to be like our circle dances? Is that the only holy dance to God and every other dance is detestable to him because it may or may not, or, or let's say even it did, it had a root in paganism or a root in a false religion and a false God that he hates. Does it have to altogether go? And these are things that, that kind of go through my mind. And I think it's a good question. It's a fair question. So now I'm going to give the answer. So in my viewpoint... When you take the God, the false God, out of the thing, out of the action, out of the dance, out of the peace pipe, out of the flag waving, whatever it is, out of the dress, out of the whatever it is, it, whatever it is that back then had it was it was an engagement in a false religion activity. Once the God, the false idol God, is removed from it, it becomes harmless and a cultural expression because there's no such thing as a false God. There's only one God. There's only one God. Only one God. So when the belief of a false God gets pushed off, what you have left is a cultural expression that is harmless. But I will share you when it is actually harmful. Because let's look in Scripture of, is there an example in Scripture where there's something used for idolatrous purposes, but when the idolatry goes away, and there's a belief in the one true God. Is the thing that's left over still an idolatrous thing that needs to be burnt away? Or is it harmless? Okay? And where I'm going to go is 1 Corinthians 8. I mean, I think it's a good, it, these are good questions, and these are good things to ponder. I mean, we have an orphanage in Haiti, and for those who may be new here, this may be new to you, but we have an orphanage in Haiti. I mean, here's something that hits home, right? Voodooism is rampant in Haiti. It is evil. Evil. But let's say Haiti converts to the Lord in mass. Does the doll, is the doll still evil? Or is it not? These are good questions, and I'm going to answer it, what I see in the scripture, because there is an area in scripture where it talks about when something is left when the idol goes away, and it's in 1 Corinthians 8, and it's really, really important. So here we go. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, now, let me, let me ask the question, before I even read it, somebody comes to you and says, here, here's a piece of steak. And you're like, great, sounds good. 
And he says, oh, by the way, um, I sacrificed this cow myself in the name of Allah. And then after it was dead, I raised it up and asked for Allah's blessing. And I asked for Allah to bless this food, and I asked him to come and be in this food. I ask you right now, would you eat it or would you not? <laughs> so Lots of no's. <laughs> Let's see what scripture says. Because the answer is both. And I'm going to answer this, and this part is really, really important. So hear me out. So then, starting at verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and earth, and indeed there are many gods as many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom from who all things came and for whom we live, There is but one Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not every person possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Messiah. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. So I will not cause them to fall. Now let me translate. Whose was this? Thank you. This is what Paul is saying. He is saying that if there is meat sacrificed to idols, it means nothing to this piece of meat. But if there are people who still have a tie, like a soul tie, to the idol. Let's say they just come out of idolatry. They just accepted the Lord. And there is a pull there, like a spiritual pull there. You better darn well not eat that meat. Because for you, it could be a vice. It could be something that could lure you back into idolatry. And Paul says those who know the God and are unaffected by it have knowledge. They know that there's really no such thing as a God. So go ahead and eat it. But if you're not there, if you're weak, he calls it weak, but that's not meant to be like an an insult. It just means that there's a weakness there. And we all have weaknesses. We all have areas that we just got to stay away from this because I'm weak in that area. 
So if there is a, a, still a pull towards that idolatry, stay away from it. And if you, as somebody who has the knowledge, who knows that you could eat this thing and it doesn't affect you, if you eat it in front of your brother who's weak, who does have a pull to that idol, you're sinning against Messiah. Okay? But in the end, that one thing, at the end of the day, it's, there is really nothing wrong with this meat. That's specifically what Paul is saying. That is exactly what Paul is saying. Unless there is a soul tied to it, and if your faith is strong, this, the meat is harmless. I know people, everybody here knows that I'm a Beatles nut. Everybody here knows I'm a Beatles nut. Thank you, Sue, for singing the Beatles during the praise and worship today. Love, love, love. Thank you. So everybody knows here I'm a Beatles nut. I know a Messianic rabbi who, when he hears the Beatles, it brings him back to his drug days in the 60s when he was getting high on LSD. And it brings him to that place. For him, the Beatles are not kosher. He needs to stay away from it. And if I went there and said, hey! (laughs) If I went to him and said, everybody's got something too hot except for me and my monkey. Near, 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 near. That's an obscure one. Okay. Hey, come on, let the feet come. Groove it up slowly. If I did that to him, come together. Oh, I can just go off on this. Forget the message. I'll just sing for, for all the songs. If I did that to him, Paul says, if I did that to him and caused him to stumble, which means to sin, I am sinning against Messiah. Does that make sense? Now, you may not agree, but you have to agree with Scripture. And Paul is clear. The meat that was sacrificed to idols is okay if you have knowledge. If you are weak, it is not okay for you. That's not about my opinion. That's Paul. There's another example. So the children of Israel, we know they went into Babylon after hundreds of years of sinning, uh, idolatry, uh, after uh, the deliverance with Moses. They had hundreds of years and they were sinning and the prophets told them you better stop or you're in trouble. Eventually Babylon comes in, take, you know, decimates the temple, um, puts them into exile. And now all of a sudden we have the Jewish biblical months, months 1 through 12, which very rarely had even any sort of name. It was normally month one, month two, month three, etc. All of a sudden, the children of Israel started to adopt the Babylonian month names. And even now, we see the, the 12 months or 12 or 13 months, it depends on the year, the names of the Hebrew months are Babylonian. Not only are they Babylonian, They're the names of Babylonian gods. 
So you may say, oh, that is not holy to do. It's not kosher to do. You shouldn't be doing that. All I have to say is that you could talk to Zechariah, Mordechai, Ezra, Nehemiah, who I think are more righteous than me. It was okay with them because it's mentioned specifically in our Hebrew Bible. I believe that once the linkage, if there's no linkage, it's just a word. It means nothing. Let me ask you this. Who has a pagan symbol in their pocket right now? Anybody? Anybody have any pagan symbols in their pocket right now? Well, if you don't think so, you better not look in your wallet. Because the dollar bill's got it all over it. Are you engaging in paganism if you have a dollar bill with the pyramid and the eye? Are you engaging in paganism? No, you are not. In the name of the Lord, you are not. He's not holding it against you if you have a dollar bill in your pocket because it has pagan symbols on it. Because there's no linkage to the paganism, the religion. It's just a thing. So because of that, I do believe that other cultural expressions will survive the coming of the Lord. And Indians will do Bollywood dances to the Lord. And it's holy unto him, independent if the root of it was for Hinduism. That's what I believe, which is really all that matters at the moment. So now I ask you the question, what about Christmas? Is Christmas a pagan activity or is it just a European cultural expression that survived because the linkage, God willing, because we all know that, 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 that Christmas has its root in paganism. That is undeniable. If anybody wants to know really when Yeshua was born, I have a full teaching on it. I did it here. He was born during the holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. I have biblical proof of it. If you're ever interested in it, I could take you through it step by step, only using the Bible. But outside of when he was born, we know it's, it's fact, it's known fact that December 25th, the holiday of that day, which aligns with the winter solstice, is like the, the celebration of the sun god. And then there was Saturnalia, which was a Roman festival which took place at that time. We know that these elements came into the celebration of Christmas. That's undeniable fact. And if you have a root in yourself, if you have like a, like a pull, a soul tie with paganism, you better darn well not celebrate it. Because that's what Paul is saying. If you are weak in that area, let's say you have that type of um, ancestry. Let's say your parents were pagans before you came to the Lord. It may be wise to not celebrate Christmas if there is that linkage. But for me, as a Jewish person, there is zero linkage. I didn't grow up with it. 
I don't know anything about it. I never celebrated Christmas in my life. But the question is, when a family, when a modern-day Christian family setting up their Christmas tree, burning a Yule log, whatever that is, is that something you burn? Yeah, it is. Are they engaging in paganism? Or is it just a harmless cultural expression? In my belief, unless you are weak, and there's a linkage to a pagan god, it is a harmless cultural expression. That is not an abomination to the Lord because the God that was embedded in this thing is long, long gone from the modern-day Christian family. That may not have been the case 2,000 years ago when Constantine and the early church fathers put this thing together. That could have very well been an abomination. But to a modern-day Christian, I don't believe And I want to say that we, as Mishkan David, you can believe anything you want individually, but as a congregation, we do not believe that these Christian expressions are an abomination to the Lord. The reason is the God is long since booted out. And for the the primary, the, the modern Christian family, the modern Christian family, who's there exchanging gifts with their kids, there's not a linkage to paganism. And God cares about our hearts. That's what he judges, our hearts. Now, I'll also say what I've said before here, too. I reserve the right to be wrong about anything. And if God, at the end of this thing, is going to say, put away all these practices, we better put it away. But the way I read it, using scripture, if the God of it is gone, it's a cultural expression, harmless. So, in conclusion, I wish you all a Merry Christmas, which was yesterday, a day after Merry Christmas, day after Christmas, and I wish you all a Happy New Year. This is the last Shabbat of 2015. When we come here to gather next week, it will be 2016. Hold on to your hats. We're in for quite a ride. You know who's weak? You know who Christianity is weak to? You know who Christmas trees and and lights and, um, and, and what are these red flowers? Poinsettias and this whole thing and Oi to the world. You know who it's weak to? I'll tell you who's weak to that. The Jewish people. Believe me, I grew up with it. Believe me, when I first came into it, it's like, it's just wrong, I don't like it. But it wasn't a spiritual thing. It was just because you, you get to this place where, okay, there's two words in Judaism. There's Jewish and there's Goyish. Goy is the Hebrew word for nation, so any nation is a, in Hebrew is goy. So you'll hear Jewish people call people that aren't Jewish Gentiles, they'll call them goys or the goyim. 
and their practices are goyish. So you got Jewish and goyish. So why, one of the reasons that we will not celebrate Christmas at Mishkan David, one of the reasons, well, number one, we are passionate about God's appointed times and his times and the things that he set up in Scripture. But that's not the only reason. If that was the only reason, we would not be celebrating Hanukkah, which is not listed in Torah. And we wouldn't be celebrating Purim, which is not listed in Torah, but it is listed in the book of Esther. But one of the reasons why we don't celebrate Christmas here is on behalf of our Jewish brothers and sisters who would consider it a stumbling block to belief in their Jewish Messiah. So if you, anybody here, has a Christmas tree in your house, I don't care. I couldn't care less. But we won't have it here at Mishkan David. Well, we rent this church, you know, it's theirs. But if we ever had our own place, let's say, we won't have a Christmas tree for various reasons, but mostly it's on behalf of them. Because Paul said, if they're weak and you cause them to stumble, you're sinning against Messiah. Happy New Year. Shabbat Shalom.